couple days ago, somebody asked me, um, is it cold enough for you? <laughs> and uh, I laughed politely. And uh, in my head, though, I said, nope, you can have some of it back. <laughs> I just, no, take it, take it. Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was fun this morning trying to get rolling um, in the cold weather. It's just one of those days you just want to roll over and go, to, go back to sleep. And, and, and then, um, you know, when you come here and you hear about everyone who's sick, oh, my gosh, it just... We had a special time of prayer beforehand for everybody who is sick. So this week, be praying for your, be praying for your friends um, that might be uh, suffering with colds and flus and fevers and all that kind of nonsense. So, uh, last uh, we're, we we've just started this um, this new series called Pathfinder, and uh, what we're doing is we're we're talking about um, you know kind of finding our way you know back towards God. And um, if, if you'll remember, last week uh, I suggested the, the possibility of trying to find some kind of a theme for the year, a way of focusing your efforts in order to grow and to, to um, uh, find out what God wants you to work on, and then you make some, some very specific steps to actually um, learn the things that he might want to teach you about that. And so how many of you uh, have a theme? Anybody? Oh, oh, half a theme? Yeah, do you? All right, somebody want to shout one out? What's your theme for the year? Go ahead. If you feel like sharing. <laughs> Strong and courageous. All right, anybody else? Wholeness. Good word, excellent word. Yeah, having that word for the year is just a really, you know, great way to just pause and go, okay, Lord, what is it that you want to teach me? And what I found over, over the last few years that I've been doing this is that there's a lot of texture to that word. And it's kind of like indigo mentoya. I do not think that word means what you think it means. And sometimes that, that happens where we're not, you know, we think it means one thing or we think that God wants us to, to, to learn something about it in one way. And really it's kind of, it's very, very different than that. Oh, but here, what we want to do at Thrive Church is to actually take this idea of following Jesus as seriously as we possibly can, and this is just one avenue of doing that. And the word that we have in focus here is discipleship. And discipleship is one of those words, um, it's just a weird, it's just a strange word, right? Because when, when somebody talks to you about, um, you know, who are you, what do you do, you don't actually ever use the word, well, I'm a disciple, you don't, you don't, we don't do that. At least we don't do that anymore. If, 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 you, if you end up talking about religion, which is you know, usually anathema for most folks, but if you end up talking about religion, usually you, you would say most generically, I'm a Christian. Uh, or you might say I'm a follower of Jesus, if you get that far. Or more than likely, what you'll just do is just tell somebody what church you attend, right? You know, you're having a conversation with someone um, especially if you get people knocking on your door and want to know where, you know, they want to ask you, you know, where are you going to go when you die? It's like, I already attended church. Well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean you're saved. Okay, here we go. <laughs> you know, kind of a thing that you have with them. So you, you, we, we have these certain words, but the fact of the matter is discipleship is what I call the inside word. You know, with our daughter who's six years old, we have the inside voice. You know, not the outside voice, because that's loud. <laughs> it's the inside voice. But we have certain words that are inside words, meaning they're, they're words that we only use typically inside the church, and one of those is discipleship. 
And, and we can be talking about this and, and, you know, back and forth. And somebody who has, you know, not set foot in church before is going to walk in and go, what is that word? It sounds kind of cult-like, right? Well, it actually came from somewhere. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's okay. Everything is, is, is going to be fine. And, and so what we're trying to do in this series of Pathfinder is to really take this idea of discipleship and, and figure out what it looks like here at Thrive Church. And so today I want to begin our exploration of discipleship on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Or if you have a Bible app, feel free to plug it in. It is Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. I want to read this little section to you, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. So here's how it goes. Uh, While you're looking there, let me just remind you that Matthew... Um, his biography of Jesus, he is a Jew and he is writing to Jewish people. So if you want to understand the Jewish origins of anything, Matthew's a pretty, you know, pretty good place to start digging. Does that make sense? So here in Matthew, if we're going to talk about discipleship, at least from a Jewish perspective, this is where we're going to pick it up. All right. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, this is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. So, Imagine this scene, if you've ever lived on a lake, you, can, you might be able to, to actually see this in your mind's eye, but there are two sets of brothers. Jesus calls both of them, follow me, and they both have the same, both sets of brothers have the same response, and what they did was they actually followed him, right? So follow me, and they actually followed him. How odd, I mean, I'm sorry, I've read this a hundred times, but if I think of it in my, my mind and, and how I would respond to things, that's just weird. Let's be honest, it's very strange. You have four men who are likely teenagers, by the way, blue-collar, average Joes, working types, doing you know the family business, what they're supposed to be doing, and some guy, some teacher comes up and says, follow me, and they do. What? I mean, they dropped everything? I mean, that's, that's what the, the text says. At once, at once, they left their nets. And then notice later on, and immediately they left the boat and their father. Did Zebedee protest? I really wonder that. I mean, because if it was my dad, he'd be like, where are you going? <laughs> what are you thinking? Fish aren't going to catch themselves. The nets need mending, you know, that kind of thing. Did Zebedee stand up and go, whoa, hang on there? I wonder that. What about the family business? At once, they left their nets and they followed him. And immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Man, just strange. Why? Why did they do that? Why did they just automatically go? Now, a few years ago, actually probably 20 years ago, there was a man named Stephen Curtis Chapman. He wrote this really great book. Man, look at that mullet. I'm telling you. <laughs> Nothing says 90s quite like that. But he wrote this great song about this scene called For the Sake of the Call. And there's almost this, 
mystical quality to it, that just something deep inside of them, they knew that they had to follow, follow Jesus. And, and with all due respect to a really great song, and one that I remember quite well, the text doesn't really say that. The text doesn't tell us that there was something intrinsic about what they were doing. Maybe the reason why they followed him is because Jesus was a very charismatic type of speaker. He would just sit with people and he would talk with them and they would just be in, in, in trance by the things that he was saying. And maybe he had this great reputation. And so when he showed up on the scene, you know, Peter and Andrew, James and John, just, oh my goodness, they felt. Well, that might be the case. The problem is the text doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us anything about that. Or maybe the reason why they... They followed God is, is much more divine intervention, like the Blues Brothers. I'm on a mission from God, and there's angelic lights, and there's fabulous music, and if you're lucky, James Brown is there, right? That would be awesome. Problem is, the text doesn't say that either. It doesn't say anything about angelic lights. Tragically, it doesn't say anything about James Brown, <laughs> Now, I think, I think all of these things may you know, come to play in some of this, but the problem is all I have is the text. And so I don't think it's necessarily any of those things. In, in my view, in my humble view, it really has more to do with the culture. It has more to do with the culture of Judaism, of rabbinic Judaism, of the relationship between rabbi and, and disciple. You see, education was incredibly important to the Jewish people, especially as it related to the Torah. Now, the Torah was the religious law. And the reason why it was so important is because it organized all of life. Every last bit of Jewish life is contained within the Torah. If you wanted to understand life, you must understand the Torah. And so starting at age six, Jewish boys in particular, sometimes girls, but Jewish boys began a formal study of the Torah. By age 10, they would have the entire Pentateuch memorized, chapter and verse. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Have you ever read through the book of Numbers? You try memorizing that bad boy, right? Or Leviticus, oh my goodness. Imagine some of the content in there trying to explain to a 10-year-old, right? And there's just you know, things that are contained within the Pentateuch, and they would have the whole thing memorized. Now, at age 10, what would happen is if that, that, that young boy showed a certain amount of aptitude for, for scholarship, they would continue on in their studies, where most of the boys would more or less wash out. It mean, didn't mean that they were... They were bad or that there was something wrong with them. It just means that they had kind of gone to their capacity. They had learned what they were going to learn of the Torah, and they were usually sent back to go to, into the family business, to learn the family trade, which was another part of Jewish education, is that not only did you learn about the Torah, but you also learned how to do something with your hands, a way to earn a living. Does it make sense? In fact, there's a passage in, in the Old Testament that says, I have given you the ability to create wealth. And, and 
Jewish people took that very seriously, that you actually did something. And so we're going to teach you that as well as teach you the Torah. So at age 10, there's kind of the shakeout period. Ten-year-olds would go back, either go back or they would go on. And the ones that went on by the age of 14 typically had most of the Old Testament memorized. Wow. Most of the Old Testament is memorized by age 14. Now, 14 is kind of an, an important age because if you were particularly gifted in the study and, and understanding of the Torah, after age 14, you could go and present yourself to a sage, a rabbi, and ask to become their, do you know the word? Disciple. Yeah, to be their disciple. Now, this is an important kind of informal process. But typically what would happen is that that young man would come and present himself to the rabbi and a, a season of testing would begin. And the rabbi would have conversations with the boy and then include him in the conversations that he had with the rest of his disciples. And in the back of that rabbi's mind was one question. Does this boy have what it takes? Do they have what it takes? Let me see if I can explain this a little bit because I think this is important. A rabbi would have devoted his entire life to the study and understanding of the Torah. And Torah was life. Therefore, in Jewish culture, the rabbi was the living embodiment of the Torah. To be with a rabbi was to be with the Torah. Do you see that? It's a big deal in that culture to be a disciple of a, of a rabbi. And the other thing that we tend to think about in terms of, of any type of teacher-student relationship, at least, at least for those of us who've grown up in the West, is we think in terms of like classrooms. And we think of the teacher has a certain amount of knowledge and, and they're going to do knowledge transfer to me. And, and there's a certain amount of truth to that. But in Jewish culture, it goes a step further. It's a little, little deeper. It wasn't that, I, that the disciple is there to learn what the rabbi knew in their mind, but rather to become like the rabbi. Why? Because they were the living embodiment of the Torah. They were life in that respect. Do you see how this thing gets elevated? Incredibly important. And when you have this student-teacher relationship, it's almost like, well, if I have enough knowledge, then I can actually change my behavior. And in Jewish culture, it was like, no, no, you change your behavior, and that will change your thinking, if that makes sense. And so to be with the rabbi was to change your, your behavior. And there's this whole process that they would go through. And, and at the, the center of it all was, does this disciple have what it takes? And so the answer was very clear. It was either yes or no. If the answer was no, the rabbi would look at the, the student, this young man, and say, I'm sorry, but my yoke is too heavy for you. Where have I heard that phrase before? <laughs> About yokes being heavy and light, right? But this was the phrase, my yoke is too heavy for you. And so that young man would then either go back to the family business or would become just a teacher of the law. 
helping other young people learn the Torah in order to understand how life was organized? If the answer was yes, this potential disciple has what it takes, then the, the rabbi would simply look at them and say, follow me. Follow me. So back to the Sea of Galilee. Four teenage boys working. Guess what? They washed out. They would not be working on the docks had they not washed out at age 10. They would still be learning the Torah in the school. Now, did they have a basic understanding? Of course they did. They understood what the Torah was, like all Jewish boys, but they had washed out of the program early in the process. And then all of a sudden, a rabbi, a noted rabbi, walks up to them and simply says, follow me. He was saying, yes, you do have what it takes. Torah is life. The rabbi is the embodiment of the Torah. This is a dream come true. There is no higher honor in Jewish society than to be the disciple of a rabbi. Because the rabbi is saying, you have what it takes to be the embodiment of the Torah yourself. And Zebedee? Zebedee, since he's working in the boat, he washed out too. It means he never got the chance to go on. So, no, he didn't protest it at all. Not only did one son get chosen, but both sons got chosen to follow a rabbi. For him, there was no greater honor. He was bursting at the buttons, most like. Likely, he could go into town and say, yep, both my boys, mm -hmm. yep, both of them. Not just one, because we always thought John was, you know, mm. but James, yeah, both of them got in. Imagine, imagine it this way. Think of your child. <clears throat> if you don't have a child, imagine you have a child. Now let's say that they do well in school. It's okay. They do fine. But they went and they applied to the local community college and were, was, was turned down. Couldn't make it in, in there. Just didn't have the grades, didn't have the aptitude, whatever it was. And, and so they went and they found a job and were you know, earning a living and doing okay. And, and then one day, a few years later, just out of the blue, they receive a letter of acceptance from Harvard University with a full-ride scholarship, and they never applied. What we read in Matthew chapter 4 is like that. It's a big deal what just happened. Now, with our 21st century American eyes, we just kind of go past it. and like, well, we don't understand it. But in that culture, oh my gosh, this was mind-blowing how this happened. How on earth did this occur? You see, follow me is an invitation. Follow me is an invitation to be with the Torah. And yes, to have high honor, but it is to become life itself and to demonstrate love and devotion to God. Literally, you left everything behind to become like the rabbi. <clears throat> now, about 100 years after Jesus, there was a, a famous uh, rabbi who wrote a phrase that kind of described this whole process. And a little blessing. He said, may you walk so closely to your rabbi that the 
dust of his feet would fall upon you. To be covered in the dust of the rabbi meant that you missed nothing that he had to teach. The dust of the rabbi was what you wanted as a disciple because you were trying to be like him. And so when you read the dust of the rabbi, that is what a disciple really is. So closely to the rabbi that they can't help but absorb everything. But Jesus was a very different kind of rabbi. Very, very different. Very unusual. A couple of things jump out at me as I'm thinking about this. First and foremost is that, is that these kids didn't present themselves to Jesus. They didn't present themselves to the rabbi. In fact, they had washed out early. They had no business doing that. Never did that. And yet, Jesus found them. Right? Jesus is still searching for people. Not just a certain segment, but he's searching for everybody. And he also, he didn't go to Jerusalem. Because see, if you were particularly gifted at the study of Torah... You went where the best of the best went. You went to Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't go and hang out in Jerusalem looking for the best of the best. In fact, he's in backwater Galilee. He's hanging with the rednecks. He's looking with the dock workers and the laborers, and that's where he finds these people. And you know what the beautiful part is? Is that if he's still searching, man, there's hope for you and me. (laughs) Right? Let's be honest about that. He's not looking for the best of the best. He's looking for you and me. And I also find it very interesting that he never, ever asks the question, do they have what it takes? In fact, he doesn't doesn't test them at all. He just observes them doing the work that they're doing. He walks up and he says, follow me. Follow me. Doesn't even test them. Because here's, here's the reality. And I hate to admit this, but the reality is none of us really has what it takes. It's not so much that Jesus believes in you. Jesus believes in you plus him. I think somebody wrote this great equation once, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? Well, this is exactly what he's talking about. It's not that he believes in you so much, and and he probably does, but he believes in what you can be based on his power in you. And that's an encouraging thought because the criteria means that I fit it and so do you. Beautiful thing. It hit me this morning as I was driving in is that later in Matthew, um, the author records some words of Jesus. Before Jesus left, and you've heard me talk about this before, but when Jesus left, he told his disciples, he said, I want you to go, and I want you to make other disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all I have commanded. So you go, and you create disciples. You need to understand that what we see in Matthew chapter 4 And the rest of the book, their training to be disciples, is what Jesus is calling us to make. Does that make sense? So it's not just getting people to say a prayer. Hey, you're in. 
but to make disciples, make people who are on a journey to be like the rabbi. I'm not sure you can do that just in a classroom situation. And so when Jesus goes and and he says, follow me, he invites that person into some kind of a relationship with him so that they can actually be like him and live their life. Here's the deal. Discipleship happens only life on life. Where you and I are talking about what it means. What is, what is God teaching me today? What is Jesus teaching me today to be more like him? Or hey, I'm really wrestling with this particular issue and, and I don't have a Jesus perspective on this. How about you? Do you have one? Yeah, let's share about that one. And you know what? It's perfectly to say, I don't know, but let's ask the one who does know. But we don't do that. We think that if we just sit down in a classroom and learn more about Jesus, then we're going to be good. Well, the fact of it is, is that that has to translate into real time in real life. That's discipleship. It's very, very relational. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going we're to explore that and just say, you know, as a church, what is it that we really want for our own discipleship? How, how is this relationship that we have with Jesus going to flesh itself out? And when I say flesh it out, I mean flesh it out. Because it's not good discipleship to be only theory, but rather what actually works in real life. This last week I was with a group of people who were decidedly not Christian. They were not disciples. Good people, very nice people, but they weren't churchgoers, they weren't disciples, they weren't any of that. And I was reminded of the fact that these are the people that Jesus hung out with. And, and I didn't have to necessarily participate in the same way and the same things that they participated, but the fact that I was there and we talked about things, and you know what, if you know me, Jesus is probably going to come up in my conversation. And it did, and it wasn't weird, and it wasn't awkward, it was just kind of a matter of fact. But you have to be in relationship with people to invite them to follow me. Follow me. Follow Jesus. That makes sense. So my prayer for you this week is that you would go and think in terms of this deepening your own relationship with Jesus by following so closely that the dust of the rabbi falls upon you. But that in turn, that would cause you to look at another and say, let me introduce you to this one who can change everything.